Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying to Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Mr. Jeff Bond. Jeff is an accomplished author, music critic, and album producer. He's written several books on sci-fi-related topics, including The Music of Star Trek, The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline, the world of Orville, and of course, the fantasy worlds of Erwin Allen. The deluxe 600-page limited edition coffee table book, which takes readers on a visual journey through the mind and career of legendary producer Erwin Allen. Mr. Bond is originally from Ohio and studied creative writing at Bowling Green State University, after which he pursued his career as a movie magazine reporter Jeff's knowledge of film and TV music scores and their creators dates back to the 1990s when he served as a senior editor for Film Score Monthly. As a freelance writer, he has written articles for The Hollywood Reporter, Geek Monthly, and Cinefantastic Magazine. From 2003 to 2006, Jeff served as senior editor at CFQ, the latter-day revival of Cinefantastic. In addition, Jeff has written hundreds of movie and television soundtrack liner note booklets as an editor for GNP Crescendo Records, Veris Sarah Band Records, and La La Land Records. Notably for us, Jeff, along with his colleague Neil Bulk, was album producer on the beautiful Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection and the Land of the Giants 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection. Now, his latest project, which he teased for us last time, is the recently released four-disc Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea original television soundtrack collection. And boy, does it sound great. As you know, when we got together to record, Jeff was extremely generous with his time, and we covered a lot of material, which is why I decided to split our conversation into two Calling Alpha Control special interviews. In part one of our conversation, we spoke with Jeff about his beautiful new book, on the art and visual effects of Star Trek, the motion picture. In this episode, we'll speak with Jeff about his latest auditory adventure into the fantasy worlds of Erwin Allen and take a crash dive course into the composers and some of the notable original music cues and themes they scored throughout the four season run of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. 
So strap into the flying sub and get ready to enjoy part two of this power-packed interview with author and soundtrack producer, Mr. Jeff Bond. Well, let's talk about what we really came <laughs> together to talk about, I guess. No, I love this stuff, so don't worry about this. Uh, that was fun, and I can't wait to get deeper and deeper into this new book you've got. But Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, so the new soundtrack collection, I guess that came out in June, if I'm not mistaken. Is that is that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so another great Irwin Allen soundtrack collection that you collaborated on. And, you know, I got to say it's great. But, you know, before I even listened to the soundtrack collection, I went back to your Irwin Allen book and I reread the chapter on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And, you know, I don't know that series as well as I know Lost in Space because, well, I'm not doing a podcast about that show, but I do remember a lot of it from watching it in syndication as a kid. And reading the chapter about the show, it was a good refresher in the whole thing. Give us a little thumbnail sketch about the series, if you will. What was so unique about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea? And it was really successful, and I guess you could say the most successful of Irwin Allen's shows. After all, it was on for four seasons, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, in a weird way, I, I think Lost in Space was probably ultimately more successful. Um, it, it became popular for its characters, mm-hmm. which I'm, you know, I guess a fan of Voice of the Bottom of the Sea would say that they're a fan of the characters, but uh, it, to me, it's more <laughs> a show about a you know a submarine and a flying sub yep. and some monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the first. It was Irwin Allen's first a TV show production. It came at a time when 20th Century Fox was starting to do a lot of television production. They had, you know, suffered a huge disaster with this movie Cleopatra that had almost destroyed the studio. So they were not doing a lot of uh, movie production, motion picture, theatrical production. But they uh, figured out this guy named William Self figured that they could make money uh, using their studio with all its resources and making television shows and and raking money from advertising from them. And he was absolutely right. And they started doing TV shows like Daniel Boone and Peyton Place. But those shows were ambitious, you know, television productions of the time, but there never had been a big, like, futuristic science fiction television production. There had been, you know, shows like The Outer Limits and, and uh, Twilight, the Twilight Zone, Zone yeah. that were black and white anthology shows, but they didn't have continuing characters, and they were pretty limited in terms of their budgets. And, you know, when Alan had made a series of movies for 20th Century Fox, um, uh, like The Lost World that had David Hedison in it, mm-hmm. and then he had done a movie Voice to the Bottom of the Sea, which was kind of his version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Come with me. Come with me. On a voyage to the bottom of the sea. Irwin was very influenced by kind of classical authors um, hmm. like Jules uh, Verne. You know, Arthur Conan Doyle did The Lost World. Jules Verne, he did Five Weeks in a Balloon. And basically, it was doing kind of a modern version of 20,000 Leagues of the Sea. And they put a lot of money into making 
huge miniatures and designing this futuristic submarine uh, and making very elaborate interior sets for this movie that came out in 1961. And then he was not getting the opportunity to do movies. Uh, he just did, uh, I think, Five Weeks in a Balloon after A Voice of the Bottom of the Sea. And he started looking into doing a television series. He, and he, the first idea he came up with was going to be an anthology show, more like The Twilight Zone. It was going to be tales of... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, I think, wasn't Edgar it? Edgar Allan Poe, right. And he was going to have like a you know recurring character of a policeman who was going to kind of get involved in all these stories based on uh, works by this author. And you know uh, he was unable to sell that idea to the studio. But then he realized that they still had all these materials, all these sets, props, and and these miniatures for Boys at the Bottom of the Sea. And he pitched them the idea of doing that as a TV show. And that's something that Fox decided to do. Welcome aboard the Savior, gentlemen. I'm Irwin Allen, the producer and sometimes writer-director of this new series. Voice at the Bottom of the Sea is a weekly, one-hour, action-packed adventure show that runs the gamut from cloak-and-dagger intrigue to the highly imaginative but completely believable realm of science fiction. The series will be filmed here at the studios at 20th Century Fox. Our two stars are the exceptionally fine actors you've just seen, Richard Basehart and David Hedison. Each week, they'll be joined by an outstanding guest star in a thrilling, fast-paced adventure on land, sea, and in the air. Now, if you'll just look over my shoulders, we'll take a peek into the future. Come on. They did the first year in black and white. They made a, a pretty expensive pilot, which was filmed in color, and they had a kind of a James Bond, Blofeld-like villain. And then the rest of the first year was more like episodes of like Mission Impossible or right. there was a lot of uh, South American dictators and Imp shootouts and stuff on, on the Fox lot, right. uh, but a certain amount of uh, underwater action and they, you know, had a giant manta ray and uh, a couple of monsters. As you can see, our future segments will not be limited to just the seven seas. The Sea View is a modern magic carpet that will transport viewers to the far-flung corners of the globe, all in a never-ending search for high adventure, land, sea, and in the air. Well, glad to have you aboard. I hope you've enjoyed your voyage to the bottom of the sea. Down scope. And then the second season was done in color. And that's when the show really became a hit. This was 1965. It was a year before Star Trek. And they created this thing called the Flying Sub, which you know was this yellow disc-shaped vehicle that launched out of the front of the sea view underwater and then you know burst through the ocean and flew. Yeah. And that, so they could kind of go 
all over the world. And initially that was used to kind of continue this, like these kind of espionage stories. Their main competition the first year was the man from uncle. And they were always trying to figure out how to beat <laughs> the man from uncle. <laughs> and this was the era of the spy craze, the James Bond movies. And Fox was making, uh, you know, our man Flint. Mm-hmm. So the first handful of episodes of the second season are just all-out spy rip-off shows. And then eventually they wound up doing some shows that were more underwater uh, monsters and and like kind of adventures underwater, and that's what really got audiences excited. And I remember as a kid, you know, we, of course, in the 60s, we did not have a color television but we would go over to other people's houses who did have giant color TVs. Giant in quotation marks. And, yeah, and, and uh, I just remember as a kid when you saw anything from Voice of the Sea when it was in color, you know, you were riveted uh, and between, you know, the sound effects, the music, and the whole look of all the underwater sequences. It was also an era where people were getting into, you know, they were enthralled by this idea of scuba diving and, you know, the Jacques Cousteau documentary specials were happening. Uh, So this whole idea of the ocean and sea life and everything was really exciting to people. So I I think the advent of color television was a huge boost to Voice of the Bottom of the Sea, and it made the show a big hit. It wound up becoming, uh, you know, a very, very formulaic and repetitive show where they would just have a monster. You know, The Outer Limits literally was a Monster of the Week show, but it had very interesting plots built around the monsters. But they sold it as a Monster of the Week show as this kind of guaranteed gimmick that was going to get viewers. And Voice of the Sea really fell into that. But the, the problem with, with the show was that they did not bother <laughs> to come up with interesting plots around the monsters. The, no. the monster was the whole point, right. and the object was just to get a monster either rampaging you know, through the corridors <laughs> of the sea view or attacking the sea view from the outside. Yeah. And that's all the show was about and it's a shame because you know they had Richard Basehart who was a legitimately terrific actor and who was so yeah. uh, bummed out I think by what the show turned into that he he turned to alcoholism um yeah but you know I have to say that's the thing I went back and watched several of these episodes because there were specific cues you wanted to talk about and I said well I better watch the episodes that they came from and yep. I was kind of pretty impressed with the visual aspects of the series. I always have been. I love the sea view. Um, yeah. Favorite. Oh yeah. Favorite yeah. for me is the four window, but I like the eight window too. You gotta love the eight window because it, that's the classic, you know, emergency surface shot in the yeah, Arctic. Exactly, you know? Yeah. And the flying sub has got to be one of the most awesome, cool designs. Yeah, for- it was literally my. Just my favorite thing, period, as, yeah. as a kid. So. But but I was going to say about the you know you talk about Richard Basehart and David Hedison. Of course, I love David Hedison too from that movie, the the Fly. But the thing that got yeah. me watching is as we get into fourth season, some of these episodes. I mean, they're just <laughs> you know they're just completely bizarre. But these guys. I mean, they played it so straight. I mean, I was like, what, where's their Emmy Awards for this? I mean, because they, you know, they never asked any questions about, well, I wonder how this monster got on the ship or, <laughs> or outside or whatever. What's but, really funny is they're, you know, the, they also had to deal with how inconsistent 
you know, the writing was. There's so many episodes where, you know, some crewmen will come in and like, I, w- I just saw a werewolf on the ship, you know. <laughs> and they'll be like, oh, you know, Chuck, oh, what do you mean, a werewolf? Are you yeah. crazy? Yeah. You know, and but they literally the previous week there had been a werewolf right. on the ship. <laughs> Uh, so, the, the, you know, they repeated so many situations that they'd have to act like all skeptical about, you know, sea monsters and stuff. But right. like this whole show is about sea monsters. Right. The one thing they did well was they got this character, Chief Sharky. Yeah. He replaced um, the guy from uh, the first season, right? Uh, yeah. They, or... Yeah. Henry Kolke yeah. was on the the first and um, Terry Becker played Sharky. And he's fantastic because he would be the one would just right. be expressing outright incredulity yes. and this is how yes. ridiculous this was yes. he had this great like slow burn mm-hmm. reaction and what he was really really funny and mm-hmm. and they should have given him even more to do but even he he has the exact same problem because they we didn't put the score in the set but there's an episode where there's you know they run into leprechauns <laughs> Uh, and and at the beginning of the show, you know, Sharky's the one who's always cynical and right. like you know needling people for believing in this stuff. But it, so at the beginning of this show, Sharky's the one who's walking around warning everybody, "Oh, we're going in, you know, we're by, you know, Ireland. We got to watch out for leprechauns." Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> the, they they just never really established real characters. Probably my favorite score that's on the album is for this episode, Blow Up. It's in the beginning of the fourth season, but it's one of the you know, later episodes in the series. And it, it, it's not a monster plot. It's it's just a plot where Admiral Nelson gets affected by this experimental gas, and he becomes paranoid. And right. He becomes like you know, Captain Queeg in the uh, K-Mutiny. And that is fantastic because it's just a drama, and it's all about the the crew reacting to how, you know, mean and crazy uh, Nelson is getting. And, and Basehart is just fantastic in it. And yep. it shows you how they could have done a real drama with that show, but they just never wound up attempting it. Yeah. Well, let's get into the soundtrack. How did this project come about and how does it differ from the other Irwin Allen soundtrack collections you've done? Well, this is a kind of a compromise between, and you know, when we did Lost in Space, and that did finally sell out too, but it took years, and that was like a 15-CD set. Mm-hmm. With, with Lost in Space, we, we had all the music, and we had the green light from the label to put out all the music. Um, so yeah. there was some... Uh, Thank you. Challenges <laughs> in figuring out how to do that and how, like, you know, we had to put it out in this, like, broadcast order per Kevin Burns, who's in charge of the Irwin Allen estate. But, you know, we had the real estate and the ability to do that. So that was a little bit more simple. That when we did Land of the Giants, we knew what the market for that was going to be. It was not going to be as big as Lost in Space, and they did not want to do an expensive set of that. And we had a lot of the music. I don't think we had all of it, but we had enough to do more, probably twice as many CDs as we wound up doing, but we were only authorized to do four CDs. And we were also 
obligated to represent all the scores. And that became a huge murderous challenge and why we kind of didn't make some people happy with that because most of these sets are sold on the basis of like, we're going to be giving you some like John Williams music or Jerry Goldsmith Mm -hmm. music that you don't own and that people are completists and collectors and are very highly motivated to get that stuff. The other composers are not always as big a draw. Uh, So for Land of the Giants, we knew we were going to include the complete pilot score that John Williams had done. But uh, everything else basically had to be sampled uh, and squeezed into it. And when, when you have, even with two years of episodes, it meant we had to reduce scores that might be, you know, 25 or 30 minutes down to like 10 minutes. Yeah, it's tough. Isn't um, it? Tough so to it choose. was very yeah. frustrating. In some cases, we, you know, there was music that was damaged or missing. There was like a big fight cue from this episode, I think, called Manhunt that I really wanted to put on. And there, there's also a big piece of music for the Spindrift ship trying to get out of quicksand from that episode that was really cool. But that was damaged. And so in some cases, we didn't have music. But in a lot of cases, we had music, but we couldn't put all of it right. on. And we had to, you know, I was looking at what was the most interesting musically but i think uh people were happy to have it and i think if you were a casual like an enthusiast about the music from that show you probably were pretty happy because it's four cds of music that's five you know five hours of music is a lot of music sure. but if you wanted to get you know complete presentations of episode scores or if you want all your favorite cues it was a little frustrating. Sure. So, you know, Voice of Bono Sea was musically, you know, apart from Lost of Space, was the show that I wanted to get out. Uh, and it was something where I grew up and actually had, you know, cues from that show memorized. And there was a lot of music that had never been put out from it. Um, Lost in Space had actually had a few different CD releases right. over the years. So quite a lot of the John Williams music, which is really the bulk of music that you're going to listen to from Lost in Space, got put out. The funny thing about that release, we did get actually a lot of John Williams music that hadn't been released and also a lot of really uh, tremendous music by like Herman Stein and mm-hmm. That like all the music for Dr. Smith right. that, that had never really gotten out on disc. So we were able to get a lot more like cool, familiar music from Lost in Space, but also then we put out all the rest of the music by Alexander Courage and Joe Mullendore and Gerald Freed, and most of that music is comedy music, right. kind of weird, wacky comedy music, which is not necessarily a big seller for you know soundtrack collectors. Even voracious, completist soundtrack collectors will ignore scores that I think are great, like Elmer Bernstein's score to Stripes, mm-hmm. or like um, Henry Mancini's The Great Race, uh, those do not sell as much as like a big action-oriented score, a science fiction score. So for Voice of the Mountain of the Sea, I knew that there was a bigger fan base uh, than there was for something like Land of the Giants. And there was a lot more exciting music than Land of the Giants or Lost in Space. Right. But we were faced with still 
basically doing a four CD set. And I was really, really worried about doing this initially because uh, the show lasts four years. Right. And that meant we would have to basically sample an entire season of scores on one disc. So a couple of factors happened immediately, which uh, were a big relief to me. (laughs) Uh, One was that we did not have to sample every score. And so we could actually pick a handful of scores and give them much fuller presentations. The other thing that happened, which sort of was a disaster initially, was that they told us they had no materials at Fox musically for the entire first season of the show. Wow. And there were scores by Hugo Friedhofer and Alexander Courage and a lot of Paul Sawtell scores. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, that's when the original theme music for the the show is recorded. <laughs> My I had a very mixed reaction to this uh, news because I knew that it was going to be a big disappointment for some people. However, from my perspective, the show defined itself musically starting in the second season. Right. And they had a composer named Leith Stevens who did music for a lot of George Powell's science fiction movies like War of the Worlds and When Worlds Collide. And he started working on the show in the second season. And Jerry Goldsmith was hired to score the first episode of the second season. And he created a theme for the show, which was rejected. Uh, but which had a motif for the sea view that was used by a lot of the other composers on the show throughout the uh, second season. So that really was a big influence on the show's music. That theme that he wrote, that was so interesting because, of course, as you mentioned, Paul Sautel wrote the what we think of as the classic uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea theme, you know, which lasted throughout the four seasons. I believe they did a re-recording and a rearrangement of it for season four. And that may have been Leith Stevens that did that. But this theme... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This theme... This theme that Jerry wrote, it's really interesting, but what I was surprised is, even though it was rejected, they actually used it in that first episode of season two, the Jonah and the Whale episode. It was actually in there, right? Yeah, I I didn't write about this, but in thinking about that, I my guess is that they were contractually obligated to use it once. Um, uh, I, I've never seen the contracts for it, but the, you know, Goldsmith was paid. He was under contract at Fox, and he was becoming a well-known film composer. He was po- becoming popular as a film composer, and he had been hired, I think, because of the Man from Uncle. He wrote the theme and some early episode scores for the Man from Uncle, and the Man from Uncle theme music was very popular. Obviously, on the second season, they were trying to kind of do the man from Uncle in a way, and they. So I, I think it was kind of obvious. Uh, let's get the guy who did the music from Man from Uncle and see what he can do. Mm-hmm. 
And, it, you know, Jerry's uh, initial theme that he did for this episode of Jonah and the Whale is very, compared to Sawtells, it's very kind of grim, yes. weird, and slow. Right. <laughs> Uh, and it gives, it does give the idea of, you know, being underwater in this kind of weird environment. It's not that exciting. And he was probably hired to give them an exciting, you know, man from uncle style theme. He just reacted more to what he was actually seeing on the show, which was this underwater environment. <laughs> You know, Erwin Allen said on the stage, you know, to Goldsmith, that's like, this might be your music, but it's not mine. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of, I think he let, tipped him off that we're not going to keep this around for long. But at the same time, you know, one thing I think I say in the notes is that the the motif for the CV, which is very, this very simple da -da -da. theme. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it wasn't like an arresting thing to hear as a TV theme, you know, especially compared to Sawtell's theme, but it was very, very useful and easy to use in terms of like underscore. And right. it, it was something you could just keep repeating and it dr helped drive the action. And uh, Nelson Riddle and Lee Stevens uh, used it in a bunch of their scores. Now, the other thing about this, we, you know, we did get, from Fox, the original recordings of Paul Sawtell's theme, which were done after, you know, Sawtell scored the pilot that was filmed in color that's called 11 Days to Zero. Right. And there's no real identifiable theme to that. opening that kind of happens as, as a teaser and then there's an end title and i think it sounds like something that was written in the 40s yeah you said it sounded like something from another era <laughs> yeah, it really it, does it, sound it, dated <laughs> very dated and doesn't really give you a feeling of being underwater or in, in any kind of excitement, I don't think. And then about six months after this was done, I think in January 1964, right before the show was going to go on the air, where they would have been recording the regular scores for this show, they brought Sawtell back and he had a new theme done. I think the first episode broadcast is called Village of Guilt and has it's about a giant octopus. Mm -hmm. 
and he recorded this new theme, which is fantastic and probably is my favorite television theme from the 60s. Right. And it really gives you a feeling of being underwater. It almost gives you a feeling of submerging because mm-hmm. of the way that he expresses the theme and the orchestration is really vivid. And he recorded some versions of that that were tracked into the pilot then to make it fit in with the other episodes. And he uses his theme a little bit in his episodes. He did, I think, at least half a dozen or maybe more episodes in the first season that's in black and white. He uses his theme, but I would say he doesn't use it very much. And I, I did not put this in the notes, and we were never able to confirm it. But John Burlingame and I kind of agree uh, that we are strongly suspicious that Sawtell got some kind of major assistance in in creating that piece of theme music. Oh, really? And we never, we were really trying to dig around those people like Herb Spencer, who became John Williams, you know, orchestrator for Star Wars. And he was working at Fox at the time, you know, Hugo Friedhofer, although I don't really think he probably had anything to do with it. But if you listen to all of, uh, and, and particularly the, the, this, and this will infuriate some people, but this is one of the reasons why I was actually relieved and happy that we didn't have all the first season music from uh, Voice of the Bottom of the Sea, because I, I don't find Paul Sawtell's music uh, is underscoring terribly interesting right. or, or fun to listen to. It right. all sounds kind of like library music to me. And when you listen to the end title that he did for the pilot, and then which is just this amorphous, you know, unmemorable thing, and then six months later he comes up with one of the most iconic, brilliant mm-hmm. pieces of main title music. And the guy, he never did, um, to my knowledge, another familiar television theme. Uh, and he also didn't work on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea after the first season. So somebody, and that somebody would have been Lionel Newman, probably, who was head right. of the music department at Fox. Somebody basically didn't want to hear any more music from him. Um, <laughs> but I suppose it's possible that Lionel Newman himself maybe chimed in on, on what the music was going to be. There's a piece of paperwork, and I'm not really sure that it's, was a note from Lionel Newman or just some technician on the stage, but for the first recording of Sawtell's theme music for the pilot, there's a note that says Bad Star, which is part of the performance, but it also said Wrong Instrumentation. And that seemed to me like a note from somebody saying, like, this just, (laughs) I don't like this, and this doesn't sound like what we should have for the show. It's it just seems, I mean, obviously they made him come up with a, a completely different piece of music, so somebody wanted this change, but we were never able to find any evidence that anybody else had a, a hand in the theme, you know, apart from Sawtell. And, you know, he had six months to think about it, so sure. maybe 
he came up with the single greatest piece of music in his career in that mm. time. Uh, but it just, if you listen to his other scores, there's not that same kind of dynamic, you know, kind of modernistic feeling. He did do some kind of Debussy, like, you know, La Mer. for the ocean which was not like unique you know it's something a lot of other composers would have and, and did do right you know he worked with another guy named Bert Schefter on the um, on the movie right yeah the movie score and I like a lot of that although a lot of it also sounds like the kind of library music mm. that winds up in the TV show and in fact you know we didn't include all of the pilot score we, it, we just did that as it was mostly as it was presented on the GNP Crescendo or when Alan Box set that had put out just the pilot score and the Terry Goldsmith score mm -hmm. um, in, I think in 1995 and we had that that's you know that was missing from our original uh, materials and that's another whole story is that a lot of the, the episodes that were sampled on the GMP set were completely missing because of that. Those materials had been pulled in 1995 oh. uh, for this GMP crescendo release. And so the Jonah and the Whale score, the pilot score, and the whole score that Nelson Riddle had done for this episode, Escape from Venice, was gone because they had sampled one cue of that on a bonus disc on the, the GNP release. So initially we did not have that, but eventually we were able to track down those materials and we had, you know, the end title to the pilot and that's why we were able to include that. And, and I intentionally included that so it could be contrasted with what Sawtell wound up doing, you know, six months later. That to me is a huge mystery. It but, is. Yeah, you know, there's definitely some neat scores as a cool uh, Morton Stevens score for this show called The Ultimate Computer um, in the first season that a lot of people wanted. And that was a very much a man from uncle type score, very kind of percussive and a little, little jazzy. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of the first season music, I just did not think was that memorable. And it was like kind of a relief that we didn't have it. It's great to be speaking again with author and Lost in Space soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. His knowledge about the music and art of classic sci-fi TV and films is truly impressive. He's got more to share about Irwin Allen, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and much more. So sit tight for the second half of our conversation with Jeff Bond. So we started you know, including a, a lot of scores from the second season because I thought that really set the style for the show. The Jerry Goldsmith score, and we were able to make that complete. There were a few minutes of cues 
including the very ending of that score that were not on the GMP release. Um, so we had all of that, and one of the climactic cues for that, you know, was used in like probably half of the, you know, episodes. Oh yeah. And the show uh, in the second, third, and fourth season. very memorable um, yeah yeah and then you know we had uh, our music by alexander courage a, a lot of lee stevens lee stevens did more episodes of the show than anybody else and he, and i feel like he is the one who really established the style he he i think was like uh you know fred steiner was on star trek where right. he he did not originate the themes for the show but he created the sound right and he had a great kind of very, very sleek, modernistic style. He had a very unique way of writing for brass. And that's when, I think when people think of music they would remember from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the color episodes, they, they're probably thinking of something Leith Stevens wrote. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I've now that I've heard some of his work on the Lost in Space soundtrack from the second season, and then uh, I believe he's also on the Land of Giants. He does have a yeah. unique, you know, use of brass and the chords and all this stuff. And, and but he's very flexible too. Like you said, there was that episode Time Bomb, and there's one particular cue. I think it was called Checklist. When uh, I think it's either Nelson or Hedis or. Uh, Crane, I can't remember which. They're getting ready to take off in the flying sub, and it's a real jazzy yeah. feel to that one. It's kind of reminded me of music from Mission Impossible or something like that. It really was cool. Yeah, it's really ingenious because it's a science fiction show, and I don't think anybody had ever done this. It's a science fiction show, but it has aspects of, you know, spy movies. Mm -hmm. So with that cue, that's, I think, it's the first cue that's, that's basically the introduction of the flying sub to the audience. Correct. They could see at the end of the first episode of the second season, or the, which is the Jerry Goldsmith, Jonah and the Whale episode, if they watch the end credits of that show, you know, there's a still of the flying sub kind of about to land in the ocean, and but it had not been seen on the show, so nobody knew what it was. So they made a big deal out of introducing it, you know, that whole checklist scene. It's Nelson running down this big checklist and doing all this stuff that they never did again on the show. They would just get in, mm -hmm. flying sub and fire it up. Maybe that was supposed to be the first time that they actually operated it, so that would actually make sense. You know, so that music create. you know, it's got bongos and there's this kind of jazzy percussion, mm -hmm. so it creates this kind of semi-spy feel, but it's also, you know, he has this kind of circular woodwind music that's the revving up the engines, and then, you know, finally this very bright, brassy stuff when it actually gets out of the water and is flying. So musically, he had to introduce the whole idea of the flying sub. And then they redo it uh, several episodes later. And this, uh, I think it's um, 
maybe the X factor where they take a senator on a flight in a flying sub and Nelson's explaining, you know, mm-hmm. the, all the operations to the senator, which is basically explaining it to the viewer as if they'd never seen it before, although they'd used it several times by then. But, you know, they really wanted to promote that, and it was a very popular element of the show. So yeah. that became, you know, a lot of the composers had to write music for the flying sub, and it's some of the most exciting material you get. Yeah, I liked that episode, too, The X Factor. That was pretty cool. And it, it's a Another thing about this show, it's, you know, they stuck with, for the most part, the Paul Sautel music, except for the one episode, but they kept monkeying with the opening titles. And I think the X Factor was the first time we saw the animated radar scope in the title sequence. Mm-hmm. Same music, but just a little bit of a different take. But I loved that cue you uh, mentioned to me from that episode, the helicopter chase. That was really an exciting action piece, you know? Yeah, that's certainly one of the longest sustained action cues in the series. And that was, of course, all stock footage uh, from the pilot. They filmed this elaborate helicopter chase along a highway for that. And then, you know, for the X Factor, they actually hired the same actor that they'd used, you know, Mm -hmm. two years or more earlier to film this sequence and made him play a different character so that they could reuse the whole thing. That cue winds up, there's an episode called The Machine Strike Back, and it's got a really exciting opening where they're working with this submarine missile drone that gets loose and starts operating on its own power and, you know, armed with nuclear missiles, so it's a big deal. And there's a whole sequence of it breaking loose from the sea view and escaping, and that they use that helicopter chase cue in that sequence, and it's, it's actually even more exciting than it is in the helicopter sequence. ending the core he had a really unique way of of ending that he often did Lee Stevens often did this um in teaser episodes to where you know they end on some big moment of jeopardy and instead of doing like so you'd think he would do like something very high pitched but he did these kind of great kind of mid-range brass chords that sounded really ominous but not super dark very kind of almost futuristic about it Uh so that you hear that at the very end of that helicopter chase cue i think when and the nelson's like fainting or something after that you think he's been shot or he just shot down the people in the helicopter um go to commercial uh, yeah (laughs) 
Stevens, uh, you know, he was very versatile. He did tend to do almost all of his scores in a very similar style. He would do kind of like a four-note motif and repeat that. But it was great because it was very consistent. He could adapt to different situations but still create an overall feel. So you felt like this was the show and mm-hmm. this was the the sound of the show, but he could do things that were very, I mean, he could do jazz and there's another score that the, the last one in the set, which was like their third or fourth, like werewolf related episode. Man beast. And, uh, there's a, yeah, there's another, there's an episode, I think just called werewolf, which is yeah. the first time I think, uh, Admiral Nelson gets bit by a werewolf and turns into one. And that, that's by, um, the other composer. And I'm going to forget his name now, but he did, he alternated with Stevens on most of Lenny Hayton. Was it? Or? Yeah. Lenny, Lenny Hayton. Yeah. Um, and Hayton was also very good. He, his style worked really well with Stevens because they both did this kind of nautical naval, you know, military kind of brass writing. Hayton, I think, was much more of a traditional composer and he tended to sound a little bit more golden age, not modernistic, which is the way Lee Stevens did. But Hayden had done a, a werewolf score, which we didn't put on the set, and that was mostly like something you would hear in a like 1940s werewolf movie. Right. But so the the werewolf thing, Man Beast, it was not a spin-off of the other werewolf episodes. There were two episodes where Nelson, you know, has been bitten by a werewolf and he reverts to a werewolf in a later episode which I was probably just called Return of the Werewolf. Um, <laughs> the Man Beast was like a different story where Crane is part of an experiment in, like with the diving bell mm-hmm. and something to do with the pressure atmosphere mix or something turns him into a, a werewolf. But Stevens' approach to that score was completely different than what he'd done for all the other episodes he scored, there was no brass, so all right. of his familiar like brass writing that really was such a part of the series is gone. And even we weren't able to include this cue, but there's a very long cue where they're cutting back and forth between stuff on the diving bell and the, the flying sub flying. And you know, whenever you saw the flying sub on the show, you were always going to hear this big brassy sound for it. And in this cue, he was just writing for strings. So the whole score is much, much more string-based. It's all strings and piano, and it's more like bar talk, uh, or you know, it's a much more of a like weird European avant-garde, modern, mystic sound. It's very unusual for the show. And, and it may have been done for budget reasons because he was given a bigger orchestra for blow up, you know, because he was recording the new version of the Paul Sawtell theme. Uh, I think uh, Stevens had rearranged that, but they gave him a bigger orchestra because they were going to do a new version of the theme. Right. And so that whole score is really big and cinematic and, and a really bold score. It's probably my favorite that he did for the show. But Man Beast was one of the last scores done 
And I have a feeling by then they were reducing the budgets and probably said, look, we gave you a dozen more guys to do blow-ups, so we're going to take away a dozen guys. He probably could not do the style of brass writing that he was accustomed to doing with, you know, a a whole 12 guys missing. Like, you couldn't do it with, like, three guys or four guys. Uh, So I think he rethought the score and said, let's do this with just strings. You can hear that in other TV scores, you know, in the 60s once in a while. They'll just do something like that. They'll reduce the orchestra and give you a different sound. Yeah, well, I think in this case, I'd have to say, though, it actually works very well with this episode. I think it had a really good horror. Yeah, it's perfect for the episode, and it makes the episode work a lot better than it probably would have if it would have been a more typical score. Uh Of the monster ones that I uh, sampled for prepping for this interview, I think that was probably my favorite one, and it has a really good performance by David Hedison. I do think that music elevates the whole episode as well, so I was impressed. Yeah. Now, Lenny Hayden, you mentioned, I guess he's one of the other ones that's, uh, I think he did like eight episodes for the... Yeah, he did the most aside from uh, Leif Stevens. And like I said, his style and his approach fit in very well with uh, Stevens. And we put most of the score, one of the first ones that he did is called And Five of Us Are Left, which is about these you know, survivors from a World War II submarine trapped in a cave. And there's quite a lot of, like, sea view music in it and flying sub music because the flying sub, like, discovers this underwater cave and gets trapped in it. And there's a whole sequence of them going through this underwater cave and there's the sea view doing the same thing. So he did also did this kind of like Debussy-like writing. And I like his version of that a little bit more than Sawtell's, mm-hmm. I think. And then he did uh, another monster episode, which was originally called The Migrants, and uh, <laughs> they changed the title to uh, The Monster from Outer Space, uh, just in case anybody you know, <laughs> didn't realize that it was about a monster from outer space. Um, and I think Herman Stein helped out on, on that, and he, he had a lot of experience writing kind of monster music. I think he had done some stuff for like Creature from the Black Lagoon and this island earth and yeah 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 he kind of contributed to all the kind of lurching monster music and actually some of it was quite exciting and they they reused that from uh, the monster's web and it became uh, the kind of the standard monster blob music that they would use on the show
I feel sorry for Herman Stein. I had interviewed a guy. Uh, I don't know if you know him or not. David Schechter. He does his own uh, monster music. Yeah, and, yeah. And he got to know Stein very well. And the poor guy, you know, all those movies, I don't think he was ever credited for any of those Universal Monster movies. That yeah, he, I got to talk to him, too, because he did some Lost in Space music. I talked to him years ago. And he's a really nice guy. Uh-huh. And yeah, many composers of that era, and like in the through the 40s and 50s, basically had to write library music or write as a team. You know, like Joseph Gershenson was the music director at Universal, and he would be the only guy to get credit right. for something like Creature from the Black Lagoon. And you'd have people like Henry Mancini, you know, working on those. But then, you know. So Henry Mancini was able to figure out how to leverage himself and start doing things, mostly because of um, his uh, work with uh, the Pink Panther director. Um, Blake Edwards. Who he did Peter Gunn with. Blake Edwards, you know, that, Blake Edwards did a bunch of really popular stuff, and, and Mancini then became a real hit maker because of Peter Gunn. So he made a real name for himself. Stein was never able to kind of break out of being a uh, you know library music composer and, yeah. and like I said I think his material is better than Lenny Hayton's. I mean Lenny Hayton was not a big name either. Right. I mean, he didn't do a lot of well-known stuff although he was well-known at Fox. Sure. Well what do you think of the Alexander Courage Voice to the well, bottom Kurt of the scene music. did some of my favorite music on the set. There's a cue called um, Sig Heil, <laughs> and I'm still not sure why they, it's called Sig Heil, except Courage tended to make jokes in his cue titles a lot, so I'm assuming that there's a joke in there, but he combines this Paul Sawtell's theme with of Jerry Goldsmith motif for the Sea View. Yeah, that was cool. Against this like snare drum and this really long extended pieces that's super cool. And there's a lot of kind of blaring familiar Jeopardy music, brassy stuff in this episode. Um, oh, the so, Cyborg? Is that, that was this Cyborg, cute. yeah. yeah. Victor so Borno. There's a lot of very familiar music in that score. A lot of the end of that, there's a long climactic cue where um, I think the Richard Basehart's been turned into a you know, cyborg and the spy put on the sea view. And the real Admiral Nelson figures out how to make his arm start twitching so everyone realizes that he's a robot and there's a very long queue for that that was all damaged that we couldn't use but we were able to get most of that and then there's another score for a third season a lot of the third season stuff was damaged and missing yeah um so we only had five minutes of this score called the lost bomb 
but it had a great fight cue, a piece of fight music that they used all the time in the show. at the same time was doing scores for Star Trek and the, the Cyborg score he did the year before Star Trek you know the first uh, regular score he did for Star Trek was this thing the man trap that was all based on electric violin and he uses electric violin and cyborg to give this eerie yes. feeling of the guy's a cyborg He had another score that, if we ever do another set, I'd like to include called Burning Ice that's got all this great, like, harp, and it's very Bernard Herrmann-like and uh, uh, all about kind of creating this frozen feeling. Um, well, you know, I so, thought the Cyborg score he did reminded me in some places of Bernard Herrmann as well. I, th- I think that was... Yeah, very... I think he, he def And there's another score that we weren't able to include in the set called Leviathan that is probably the most Bernard Herrmann-like thing that he ever wrote. And unfortunately, the whole tape elements for that were really, really in terrible shape and unusable. That's too bad. And if we ever do another one of those, we would have to go to like M&E tracks or something. At this point, we just don't have any usable elements for it. Mm, That's interesting. Well, we got to talk about Robert Drazen and uh, you call it one of the most infamous... (laughs) episodes in the series the wax men yeah i mean i think it was it was infamous for me as a kid (laughs) because it just absolutely was the weirdest and scariest thing i'd ever seen but i I think i probably watched wild wild west at the same time as a kid and uh, this actor michael dunn played the main villain in wild wild west michaelito loveless um dunn was a little person and in The Wax Men, he plays a, you know, evil little clown who comes in a crate uh, with all these wax duplicates of uh, the, you know, Seaview crew. And so he replaces, slowly, somehow replaces every person in the crew with this uh, waxy-faced wax dummy that can't talk and but has like the kind of weird overdone makeup mm-hmm. on so the scariest thing about the show was that this evil clown would control these wax figures by speaking into this little microphone that he had and he would just mouth the words yeah. Uh, and then the wax figures would speak them in the, uh, this kind of emotionless voice. And it is just super creepy. It is. And, uh, Drasnan, I think, had done some like Exotica albums and uh, wound up doing scores for television. And, you know, he's 
done stuff for Lost in Space. Well, he worked on Wild Wild West, too, Yeah, I think. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, my guess is he probably was hired because uh, they were doing an episode with Michael Dunn and then <laughs> seen Wild Wild West. That, um, you know, Wild Wild West was very popular. Michael Dunn was very popular because of Wild Wild West, so they would have been very much on their radar, and I'm sure that they would have done anything they could to kind of remind viewers that this was the guy from the Wild Wild sure. West, and that's what they hired him. So he did just this very spare, weird, eerie score that with, you know, the strings kind of doing like these little pitch bends and just these kind of rattling uh, little xylophone notes and stuff. And it's a score that's it's very static and just kind of hangs there in the air and reinforces how weird all of this is. Um, yeah, but he does write and, a, little mo- uh, a little motif for the clown. Which I yeah. love when they do that. They give the character his own little, you know, signature. Yeah, there's actually, it's funny because there's another score, and it's a, for a very similar episode called The Deadly Dolls. Yes. Um, With, that has Vincent Price. Uh, and it's the scores by Harry Geller, who we did not include any of his music on the set, and it's something that would have to wait for another set if we ever do one. You know, when I was putting this together and sequencing everything we and at one point the deadly doll score was in the mix what's unique about that score is that it's one of the only boys the bottom of the sea scores that has a completely thought out melody oh. uh, there's a big kind of theme for brass that's played at the beginning of it. it's very jaunty but it's a, like a really cool exciting theme and then he does all sorts of variations of it throughout the score so the Waxman score, it's you know, it's it's less of a theme than just kind of a motif. It's a more simple. It's not a, like a fully expressed theme, but it's a it's a very effective right. and it's just creating like a, this creepy presence of the clown. I was really glad we got that score in there because it shows a little bit of the range. Um, you know, we included a lot of the Leith Stevens scores. I wanted to get as many of those sure. in as I possibly could because I think that he best expressed the sound of the show. But because of that, I thought it was important to get some of the more oddball uh, scores. And of course, Stevens had done one of the more oddball ones, which was Man Beast. But uh, the other one that I think most people would remember is uh, The Wax Men. So I think that really helps kind of break up the set and give it some variety. It does. And it is really neat. And it must be hard, like you say, to pick and choose 
you got to deal with the complexities of what's available and then trying to narrow it down to four discs. That's hard. But I think you did a great job of giving us a sense throughout the four seasons. You talked about him briefly. Nelson Riddle's got a score in there, that Escape from Venice score. That was pretty interesting. I hear a lot of Batman in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nelson Riddle you know, was another guy who was working at Fox at the time, and he wound up doing Batman a year later. He obviously only did one Voice of the Bottom of the Sea score and you know there's something weirdly comic about some of those like weird trills and things that he he does Mm -hmm. in the escape from venice score which sound like batman exactly decided to put him on Batman, they made the right decision, and they were very happy with that. The, he was the Fred Steiner of Batman. For sure. Uh, for sure, because he didn't invent the Neil Hefty theme, but he uh, you know, really created the sound of that show. For sure. And, uh, he also makes great use of Goldsmith's theme and then they had to write one of the dumbest things that they ever did on the show was have captain crane have to sing this code theme for the episode escape from venice and it was written the theme was written by lionel newman because david hedison had to sing it on the show right and it's a plot point and so newman wrote the theme and taught it to hedison and then nelson riddle incorporated it into his score. It's credited to Lionel Newman in the cue sheets, although he didn't get then, you know, he didn't really get credit per se in the episode. But it, Nelson was a fantastic arranger. You know, he did obviously work with Frank Sinatra and uh, a lot of famous singers and was better known for that probably than he was for like writing television music or, or film scores. But he was really good at kind of working with other people's material and doing great arrangements of stuff. Um, So he was able to, you know, weave Goldsmith's material and and, uh, this thing that Lionel Newman wrote into a score. with his own kind of simple but effective uh, it's not really an action theme but it's kind of a just like a this is an important mm-hmm. you know this, this is important theme pay attention um, that, that, <laughs> that you hear you hear it it basically takes over from Goldsmith's theme at the opening credits played a lot as Captain Crane is sneaking around Venice, basically. Well, one of the cues you mentioned to me from Nelson Riddle before we recorded was this in flight. (laughs) 
and in the liner notes, and you said it's a straight recreation of Jerry's unused second in title music. I guess Jerry Goldsmith went back and made another run at doing main titles and end titles. Yeah, a week after he did the Jonah and the Whale score and, and the theme that he wrote, obviously someone expressed to him that they weren't happy with the theme he wrote and he should take another crack at it. So he recorded these two new main and end titles while Lenny Hayden was recording uh, and five of us were left. revelation to me because I remember hearing this piece called In Flight that was on the GNP release that's credited to Nelson Riddle and Jerry Goldsmith and uh-huh. I just always thought that because I'd never heard any other versions of it. It's only heard once in the show and I assumed that this was just an arrangement that Nelson Riddle had come up with based on that four note sea view theme and if that had been the case, Nelson Riddle would have really been brilliant because there's this whole rhythmic, you know, accompaniment to that scene that's really exciting. So when we were doing the album, Neil Bulk, who is my kind of co-conspirator on on these Irwin Allen releases and who does all the hard work of actually figuring out what everything is and what are the right takes or what are the existing materials and and what order they should be in. All the information you actually need to do this, like Neil figures out. And he told me that he had found these things, you know, identified as main titles by Jerry Goldsmith. And he's like, "Uh, could this be anything important? And (laughs) I started listening to him. And I immediately, like, it was obvious, okay, this is the same as that in-flight piece. But then there's this whole ending to it, this brilliant brass ending, and it's also very much extended from what Riddle did. So we found the paperwork and when it was recorded and realized that this was basically Goldsmith's second attempt at a theme. And I, I think of it and maybe even discussed it in the notes as like Goldsmith's flying sub music, mm-hmm. because I, I think that they were thinking about that. It's clearly much more energetic than you would need for showing the sea view plowing through you know, the ocean. And it's unclear how or whether it was intended to work as the main titles to the show with the same, you know, footage of the sea view sinking or, and uh, the shots of uh, Basehart and Hedison on the, in the control room. We never saw whether it was combined with that stuff. So it sort of exists on its own, but it shows you like this far more propulsive, dynamic approach, a much more of an action approach to the show. And 
Yeah. It, I wish that, you know, Goldsmith could have done a couple more scores and played around with that because it's really exciting. It, you just hear it, you know, in the Escape to Venice for the flying sub, yeah. you know, in flight. And uh, that's the one time that you hear it on the show. Yeah, it's very evocative of The Man from Uncle to me. That's a yeah. lot closer to what... Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like that's where, you know, they basically said, look, you know, we wanted something like The Man from Uncle. Why didn't you do something like The Man mm-hmm. from Uncle? And and so he said, you know, all right, let me try this again. But uh, I guess it did not evoke, you know, underwater and the ocean. And it was really kind of a tough assignment, because if you look at that opening, it fits with Paul Sawtell's music, mm-hmm. which is more kind of stately and mm-hmm. and uh has more the feeling of moving underwater and that's not a kinetic action you know <laughs> piece of cinema to score to so you know i don't know whether goldsmith was looking at that footage or just said okay i'm just going to write them something that they could use like if they're going to feature the flying sub and in this title yes. or, or what, but they never even used it, which is really interesting. It is, yeah. The tales of but the... But people like the Sawtell theme. The, the Sawtell yeah. theme was popular, and it's still, you know, it's like I said, it's still, to me, my favorite piece of TV theme music from the 60s, and they went back to that, and uh, that branded the show. did. It's interesting. You know, I got a lot out of reading your liner notes, as always, and I think it's pretty cool a guy can come in like Jerry Goldsmith and do one episode. And and we didn't probably talk enough about uh, the Jonah and the Whale cues that are on there, but some of them are really impressive. And he does a lot of interesting things with brass fanfares, too, and pitch bins all over the place. In fact, the bumper for that is just basically a pitch bin, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, yeah, that was one, you know, he didn't invent that technique, but it was a signature sound of his and uh you know we did not have the percussion effect that was an overlay that he created that you know sort of his version of the sonar effect and it was probably done with the solo vox which was this uh basically an electric organ that you could make like these kind of white noise sounds with Um, but that, that was a, a separate element that we did not have. But, you know, Goldsmith was absolutely genius at, you know, creating unusual sound right. and effects. And uh, he said that he had to write so many television scores and he was just a genius at creating variations of themes and motifs. So he could write a four note motif and very quickly create 20 minutes of music just by playing around with you know four notes mm-hmm. like i said he was becoming a big name at that time and they, he was starting to become a, a kind of a fixture at fox where he was under contract so he was part of branding and marketing at least for that episode it just didn't work out but you know this music itself finds its way into episodes through the whole rest of the series. For sure. And uh, he did this this thing about a giant whale where they're basically reusing footage from a first season episode about a giant whale. You know, when the whale attacks the sea view, he does this whole kind of lurching just big brass walls. Yes. Um, 
was another kind of signature of his. You know, he did that in The Boys from Brazil, and it's this stuff in The Boys from Sea is actually a lot like this kind of crazy waltz that he did in Poltergeist for some of the climactic action in that. So he had a very distinctive style and, you know, was one of the, if not the best, you know, composer, I think, working in the 60s at that period. Well, that collision course cue you were just talking about, it also has some really interesting echoing effects when that torpedo hits the whale. I don't know how that was done, but that's... uh Those, uh, he, he was on the verge of using like Echoplex, which is like a tape delay where they would record something on a tape loop and then replay that. That really starts showing up in Planet of the Apes. I think that might have been the first time that he used that effect, mm-hmm. and that's several years later. But he was trying to do things like that. There's another score, uh, one of his first scores he did for Fox, is this thing called Shock Treatment, which is, takes place, it's like Stuart Whitman pretends he's insane so he can be put in an insane asylum and so there's a lot of weird sounds in that score and he's doing similar things where he's repeating things to give you almost the idea that it's echoing and Mm -hmm. and, um, receding but it's all done live i don't think that they were doing he was not doing actual tape delay effects so i think those are all done in performance but it's very evocative it is it is it's cool and it makes it even more impressive because it sure sold that whole thing you know it's funny is this the only erwin allen series that does not have john williams uh Writing music uh, well, for it? Of that period, it is. Alan did later shows like, you know, Swiss Family Robinson. And uh, I think there's a he did a show about firemen in the 80s. That it only probably lasted half a season. So in terms of his well-known shows, he did those four shows in the 60s. And the reason that John Williams is not on Voice of the Bottom of the Sea is because Irwin Allen had not discovered him. Hmm. Uh, I, I suppose there could have been, you know, just because of the circumstances of of them kind of chasing Man from Uncle, you know, Goldsmith was their choice. Sure. But at that same year, Allen hired John Williams to do Lost in Space. Right. Uh, so while Goldsmith was scoring Jonah and the Whale, John Williams was probably working on the the first few episodes of of Lost in Space. And once, you know, Alan heard Williams doing Lost in Space, that's the guy that he wanted. Sure. That was exactly the kind of music that he wanted. And so he used him uh, the next year on the Time Tunnel, and then the next production was uh, Land of the Giants. So the, I've heard people talking about, you know, why didn't he just get John Williams to write some episodes of Voice of the Bottom of the Seas, and I think that misunderstands like kind of the position that Williams and, and Goldsmith were in at that time. They both had done theatrical films. Goldsmith had definitely done much bigger films than Williams at that time, but Williams had done a number of comedies, and so he was getting known as a film composer. Right. And he was uh, really beloved by Lionel Newman, personally. Lionel Newman uh, you know, ran the music department at Fox and, and loved John Williams, and li- liked Jerry, too. But uh, I think he uh, had a 
better relationship with Williams. So it was a more of a big deal for John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith to do an episode of a TV show. And so neither one of them, at least at Fox, were going to score, you know, episode five of right. the show. Williams was because he was tried out, but that that's what made his reputation was doing those first handful of episodes for Lost in Space. Once he did that, I think he would never be asked to just score like some regular episode of a show. What it, he would do and what he and Goldsmith were asked to do was, okay, write us a TV theme for this show, which you're going to hear every week and which you're going to get paid for every week and which is going to brand the show and then write us an underscore, which is going to create the sound of the show. Right. So that's much more prestigious sure. than calling in a composer and say, okay, we're on episode eight. I just need you to score this episode. Right. And you're not going to write the theme. Uh, you're going to probably adapt somebody else's theme. And it's just not as prestigious. So I, I think there are basically once Williams scored Lost in Space, there was no chance that he was going to do anything but come in on the first episode of a show and write its theme and maybe like score that first episode to establish the sound. He left his mark, that's for sure. And, you know, uh, you mentioned before we uh, we music collectors or whatever, we're completists. So you've got Lost in Space, you've got Land of the Giants, now you've got Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Is there any time tunnel in our future? Well, there's always time tunnel. Uh, I, I cannot confirm, <laughs> but uh, I will say that there is a strong chance that you might see see time tunnel. That's good. And there's, uh, you know, time tunnel is just one year, so it could conceivably solve many issues that people have with releases like this, except that one thing I would say about time tunnel that people need to understand, and, and this also relates to Voice of Bottom of the Sea, both those shows and particularly Time Tunnel used lots and lots of Fox movie library sure. music. You know, because Time Tunnel was literally doing, you know, let's do a Sword and Sandals episode this week or a biblical episode or a Western. Uh, and they didn't always have a composer writing an original uh, show. So they had tons of recorded music from other Fox movies. Um, and, you know, that was the whole idea of the show was to get stock footage from other Fox movies right. and bring a movie scope to like a TV show by showing, using stock footage. And they sort of took the same approach with uh, by having these giant big scores from you know Bernard Herrmann and other composers tracked into episodes. But having said that, they got some great scores. There's some Leith Stevens did a couple of really good scores for it. George Dooning, who did his only score for an Irwin Allen show uh, for the Civil War episode. Um, and, you know, John Williams did a great pilot. And uh, I'll say one thing about the, the the one thing that's really aggravating about the time tunnel disc on the GNP set uh, is that it doesn't have any of the time travel music. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it actually identifies a cue. There's a cue called um, time transfer, I think listed on the set but they only i think excerpt some of it and they don't actually include the time travel part of it and that was actually a part of the show's format every episode opened with you know doug and tony right uh tumbling through time and they had this john williams you know really immersive cool uh mm -hmm. piece of time travel music so if 
we were to do uh, a time tunnel set, that's something that would be very important to address. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed based on your uh, extensive knowledge of the <laughs> of the music. I'm very hopeful. It looks like you've been, if nothing else, doing some research on it already. So that's that's encouraging. Yeah. I think it'd be cool, and it's another John Williams score. That's got to be a plus. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be ver- it would be great to have all four of those sixty shows. Sure, uh, sure. Represented this way for sure. Okay. Anything else that you can talk about soon to be released or any other projects that you are for sure coming out that you want to talk well, about? Well, uh, TV related, I worked on a, a release of uh, Monster Go Home, which is the uh, oh. Monsters movie uh, that was done in the 60s wow. with the score by Jack Marshall. And it, we got that in fantastic sound. That, that will be out, I think, fairly soon cool and so that's a you know if you're into television music that's a great it's got kind of like you know there's a it's all built around a big road race and there's this kind of like surf guitar music for that and some you know variations of marshall's you know monster theme Mm -hmm. we're able to find great sources on that so that's in spectacular sound so that if you're looking for like 60s tv related music that's a big release cool that's great. Well, it's really always a pleasure to talk to you, Jeff. We're going to link to all your usual places, your Amazon authors page, uh, La La Land Records. We'll put all that those links in the show notes. Otherwise, where else can people catch up with you online? Uh, unfortunately, I'm only on Facebook. Only on Facebook. <laughs> I do. I've got an Instagram uh, account too, but uh, I don't post yeah. much on that. So uh, you can just look me up on Facebook. Up in terms of anything I'm promoting, I'll probably put it up there. Oh, great! That sounds good. Well, once again, I've uh, overstayed my uh, welcome and kept you on the line for much longer than you were probably. You can keep listeners on for this one. (laughs) Yeah. This may be another double episode. I'll have to figure that out. But it's going to be a lot of fun. You got got over two hours. Yes, I did. Sorry. (laughs) But I really appreciate (laughs) it. And I know our listeners. Yeah, no, it's fun to talk about. These are great projects I'm excited about, so I'm happy to talk about them. They really are. Once, once we ever get to reviewing season three episodes, we'll have you back on to talk about season three music for sure. And if anything else comes out of interest, okay. we'll get you back on. But thank you again so much. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you again later. All right. Thanks a lot, Lane. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a blast speaking again with author and soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. Be sure to check out all of Jeff's works at the links in our show notes below. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will continue reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. 
That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.